The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power Energy Management. C-Power provides custom demand-side energy management solutions that help keep you green and earn revenue in the process. C-Power is a leading national provider of demand response curtailment programs. And if you think about it, the greenest energy is probably the energy you don't use. C-Power also offers integrated solutions like storage plus demand response and other tools to help you achieve your green energy goals and monetize your energy assets. C-Power is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue through energy curtailment, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. Find out more about C-Power's demand-side energy management solutions at cpowerenergymanagement.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Bombogenesis, explosive cyclogenesis, a weather bomb. I am, of course, talking about the low-pressure winter storm that is raging outside my window right now as we record. But those terms sound like a pretty good way to describe the political weather system gripping Washington, D.C., and one of them is swirling right on top of the Environmental Protection Agency. This week, what it's like inside the storm at the EPA. ProPublica's Talia Buford joins us to talk about how Scott Pruitt's aggressive regulatory rollback agenda is changing the agency's relationship to science. Then, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo unveiled his latest energy vision. It's particularly big for offshore wind and energy storage. Is New York suddenly the country's hottest storage market? And finally, we'll wrap up with a glance at two companies that uh, Jigger is intimately familiar with. BP has jumped back into solar, and Sun Edison has emerged from bankruptcy. What does the future pretend for these once mighty players? And that Jigger is Jigger Shah. He's the president of Generate Capital, just outside of Washington, D.C. How are you faring in this bomb cyclone so far? Hoping that we get this podcast done before I lose power again. Well, Catherine Hamilton is with us from her home in Virginia. She still has power. She's usually in D.C., but is uh, hunkered down at home with her mic in the middle of the storm. How are things in the Hamilton household? Everybody is duly gagged so that there is no background noise because none of the kids have school, of course. (laughs) Today's guest is in New York City. Talia Buford is a reporter at the investigative journalism outlet ProPublica. Her beat environmental disparities. She covers the people and communities most vulnerable to environmental harms, and she does an amazing job of it as well. Talia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, Talia previously covered energy at Politico and was most recently a reporter at the Center for Public Integrity. She joins us today to talk about what it's like inside the Trump administration's regulatory rollback at the EPA. In your most recent piece, you look at what the delay in dismantling of a a very specific water rule, this effluent rule, uh, says about Scott Pruitt's tenuous relationship with science and uh, relationship with industry. So we're going to talk about that rule. But I'd like to know first, given that you're having a lot of conversations with people inside the EPA and people who are leaving the EPA, what's the mood right now inside the agency? I think it's probably the mood that a lot of people are, are feeling just generally um, in this administration. Uh, it's just a very uncharted territories. Um, in my reporting, a lot of the staffers said that the way that they're interacting with Pruitt and his staffers is unprecedented. Um, these are career staffers. They're not political appointees. They're used to the ebb and flow of different administrations, and, and they're able to get their work done despite who is sitting in the Oval Office. Um, so no one I talked to said that they'd experienced anywhere near the sort of chilly reception that they'd gotten under Pruitt. 
Um, and what I heard from a lot of the staffers um, is frustration. Uh, they, they understand that priorities change from administration to administration, but they feel as if, as if they're not only um, not allowed to do their jobs, but they're being asked to actually dismantle the work that they've spent literal years creating. And and I, I think it's understandable that that would be pretty demoralizing for anyone. That brings us to Betsy Sutherland, who was formerly Director of Science and Technology at EPA's Office of Water. That is until August, when she stepped down in frustration with the Trump administration. And as you said, that the, the, the frustrations that she expressed seem to be different than with other administrations. She's been there for 30 years. She's seen the ebb and flow, as you said. Why was her departure significant? Well, her departure is actually a part of um, a larger um, exodus of folks who are, who are leaving the agency. Um, it, you have people who leave every year um, under any administration, but um, what we're seeing a lot during this administration is that some of the um, higher ranking officials uh, in the agency, people who have 30 years of experience like Betsy, um, are leaving the office, are leaving the agency, and they aren't being necessarily replaced by um, by new people and um, and the few people that are being hired are at much lower levels. Um, so, so that's definitely something that's been different. Um, and that's one of the things that has been um, really uh, interesting about uh, people like Betsy who have left and then also have now become much more outspoken about the agency and its direction um, since they left. Talia, one of the things that um, I've spoken to people both inside and outside of EPA, and it sort of affirms what you had said in your piece, but one of the things they said was so disheartening and different from previous administrations, whereas, say, under George W. Bush, you know, there was a mercury rule put out that really didn't have any teeth. You know, the priorities were different. Programs were either buried or not really worked on and supported, but that this feels like a dismantling of the entire agency, that it's the budget, that it's the people, that they've never seen anything like it. And they're very worried that it will take a long time if they can ever put it back together again. Sure. Um, I, I think that one thing that, that was interesting as we were uh, creating the story is that we realized that a lot of people don't really understand kind of how EPA works and all of the things that go into these regulations that um, that the agency eventually puts out. And so when you start to take them apart and say that they are overreaching or that they're unnecessary, what you're really doing is you're, you're taking out a lot of the teeth that the agency has uh, developed over year over the years. And um, it's not something that the that they'll be able to fix uh, in a in a quick turnaround. Um, the, the effluent rule, for example, that I wrote about in the piece, took 10 years for them to develop and research and write. And uh, so it's not like even if um, the administration ends after four years, that they're able to just kind of reinstate things back to the status quo, um, you know, in, in 20, in 20, whatever, it's going to be years and years and years, just to get us back to where we were, you know, last year. So, Leah, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, isn't that exactly the point? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I suppose it would be um, if that if your goal is to um, um, you know roll back rules. Um, I, I think that where this comes into conflict is that um, Pruitt uh, has has made. Um, a really concerted effort and, and put a priority on going back to the basics of the EPA, um, really protecting clean water, protecting clean air, and, and um, doing some of those fundamental things that we think that the EPA does. Um, 
what makes that complicated is that if you take away a lot of these rules that uh, maybe people don't understand or that they don't um, agree with, that it's going to be that much harder to therefore, you know, fulfill that fundamental mission of the agency. So I understand that, yes, it is, you know, kind of the point if you're rolling back a rule to to roll it back. But if your, your goal is also to um, protect the environment, um, this may not be the best way to do it. Right. But I don't think he wants to protect the environment. Right. And I, I, I guess I, what I'm trying to figure out is I think elections have consequences. I think in the past, what you're saying is that they didn't have consequences and that the EPA administrators that were put in by previous presidents who promised to roll back regulations basically, you know, were swayed by the mission of the organization and therefore, you know, sort of kept going. But you know, this one, I mean, Scott Pruitt has been suing the EPA for a living. That's basically his entire life's mission. Sure, definitely. And I and I don't know if um, I would say that um, the other uh, EPA administrator, administrators were necessarily swayed by the, the mission, but I think that um, environmental protection can look different uh, to different people. Um, and I think that even when I talked to staffers uh, today, they talked about, you know, um, Christine Todd Whitman, they talked about Ruckel's House, they talked about um, previous administrators that um, maybe they didn't always agree with everything that they did, but they knew that they still had a, had some sort of fun, fundamental um, desire to want to protect the environment, whether or not that was um, in the way that the staffers believed that it should have been done, that was fine, but they they still did something. And, and in in contrast, what Pruitt is doing is um, not saying, hey, let's let's kind of move forward and and uh, create more protection. He's saying, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this at all. I mean, we should let the states handle this in our, on our own. And I think that where that becomes dangerous, um, or it can be dangerous, is um, having a patchwork of environmental protections means that there is no floor. That means that Alabama versus, you know, Virginia versus Michigan can all have very specific or very different levels of pollution or um, or contamination that they allow their citizens to be um, exposed to. And if you don't have the federal government um, kind of setting that floor in whatever um, way that that may come, um, it, it really can create a, a, a lot of inequity. Um, and again, is it that these rules are necessarily the only way to do that? No. And that's that's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah, and my understanding is that, you know, given that the mission is to protect public health and environment, that even the regulation that has been in place for years is seeing little to no enforcement in the existing administration. I do want to bring us back around to the effluent rule that you reported on, because um, amidst this debate that we're having right now or conversation that we're having about the limitations of the EPA, I think it often gets lost how long these rules are considered for. And as you said, the effluent rule that Betsy Sutherland was working on, um, that was 10 years in the making, and it went through a number of scientific reviews. And staffers at EPA uh, meticulously worked on that to make sure that it was sound. Can you talk about the process and then how that process led up to a meeting with Pruitt who ultimately didn't seem to agree with the the, dec the decade of science 
Sure. Um, so just um, to kind of walk back a little bit, I'll, I'll start with just what effluent is, because I had to start there too. Um, effluent is uh, the wastewater that's allowed to be discharged into rivers and lakes. And it comes from um, 59 different industries uh, produce effluent, um, anything from commercial animal farms to landfills to soap companies and dental offices to coal-fired power plants. Um, this wastewater is um, often... Uh, contains dangerous toxins like mercury, for example. So it's it's not necessarily, you know, benign thing, stuff. Um, the effluent guidelines for coal-fired power plants hadn't actually been updated since the 1980s. And that's when EPA said that settling ponds, literally allowing coal ash wastewater to settle and then siphoning the clean water from the top of the pond, was the latest in cutting-edge technology and could be dumped into rivers and lakes. Um, and that worked for years. and um, but around, uh, I think it was 2000, the 2000s, they noticed that they saw a really high concentration of toxins coming from the wastewater that they hadn't seen before. And they tried to figure out how best to address it. They started by creating a 400-page survey. Um, they sent it to 733 different facilities to understand how they, how they handled their wastewater currently. Um, scientists at EPA visited 73 facilities in 18 states and flew to southern Italy to check out technology that was in place at a facility there. By the time the agency put forward its rule governing the effluent from coal power plants, as I mentioned, you know, 10 years in the making, um, it was very, very confident that the necessary technology existed because they'd seen it with their own eyes. So fast forward to this, well, to 2017. Um, two industry groups filed petitions asking um, Scott Pruitt to reconsider the rules Sutherland and her team had developed. Um, as Pruitt was making the decision on what portions to reconsider, Sutherland and her team sought to brief him on the issues and, and give him their thoughts and just say, hey, this is our area of expertise. Here's what we think of these petitions. Here's what you need to consider. First, it took them weeks to be able to get onto his calendar. And then after they had briefed a bunch of political appointees, they finally got time with Pruitt. Um, Sutherland and others told me that they felt good going into the meeting. They had no reason to believe that their logic and, and their approach wouldn't win. Um, they told me that Pruitt and the staffers um, asked very few questions in those two briefings and that... Um, they weren't really sure kind of how things were going, but they tried to be, be optimistic. And so when they left, uh, they Sutherland and her team thought they had done a good job. Um, and then literally a few days later, Pruitt announced that, you know, nope, we're going to reexamine the pollution limits on two of the biggest sources of wastewater from coal plants, which literally if depending on how this um, uh, re-examination goes, it would uh, potentially erase the entire thrust of the of the F1 limitation rule. And and obviously when they got that news, Sutherland and her team said that they were um, stunned and, and crestfallen, which is kind of understandable. The part of your story that spoke to me the most was the, you know, sort of process with OIRA um, under Obama, right, where they were basically trying to gut the rule. And it wasn't until, you know, there was a lot of pushing by EPA that they finally relented and got the original rule in place. I, it's it, The part that I think bothers me about this entire sort of conversation is that I think it is well known at this point that coal is on its way out, right? I mean, the UK has basically phased out coal. The National Academy of Sciences says that it costs like $100 billion a year in human costs in the U.S., 13,200 deaths per year. You know, Duke 
power has shown that they can't manage their coal ash ponds and are constantly, um, you know, basically creating environmental disasters in North Carolina for which they're not being fined because they own the state of North Carolina. And I just, is, is, doesn't this sometimes just like bother you from the fact that EPA is basically not doing its job of protecting human health and these rules, even if they were fully in place, weren't going to protect human health? I think the first thing that I thought when when you started talking is that, well, you know, Trump ran on bringing coal back. So, I mean, we say that it's dead. We say that it's, you know, um, on its way out. Um, that's not what uh, Trump was elected to do. Um, and so, I mean, in that sense, he's, he's, he's fulfilling his campaign promises in that sense. Um, as far as the affluent rule, um, I think definitely there was an understanding um, even within the EPA that they could have gone further, that this was not the most protective, but that it was reasonable. And I think that, again, that's an important um, distinction because what they're trying to do when they create these rules is not create the most stringent, you know, cumbersome rule possible. They're literally trying to create the best available technology and say, this is kind of the industry standard. If you're not meeting this, you need to. Um, and, and so there are going to be people who are obviously above that. And there are currently people who are already, you know, implementing things to, to comply with these rules who are not even concerned about whether or not they get rolled back or not. Um, but then there were a handful of companies who were still holding fast to coal ash ponds and, um, and EPA, these rules were really meant to say, hey, let's get everybody on the same floor. Let's get everybody at least doing, you know, these very basic um, uh, standards so that we're all on the same playing field. The thing that bothers me about this is that I think that this is why we have environmental justice issues, right? In general, people of color and poorer people live around these fly ash ponds. They live around these coal plants. They live around these environmental um, disasters. And we're restraining ourselves to best available technology. Like your piece talked about how Robert Kennedy Jr. said, if someone dumps a pile of mercury in your yard, you don't say, well, here's the most cost-effective way for me to clean it up. You say, remove it all. I don't care what it costs you to remove. So I cover disparities in environmental impact. So of course, um, I'm uh, attuned to, you know, kind of any sort of disparities that might be happening. But I think that one thing that's interesting, especially about this, is that um, it's not just the people who are poor or people of color who are impacted by this. Um, these um, coal power, power plants um, are often <laughs> around major cities. They're upstream from um, major water intakes for major cities that um, are, are very diverse. Um, there are coal ash ponds in Memphis. There are coal ash ponds, you know, all in the Midwest. So I think that um, it's not just um, the people who are maybe um, disenfranchised who are impacted. This is really a concern for um, anyone who lives uh, or drinks water or <laughs> who um, experiences the environment. Um, in the United States. Um, so I think that that's, that's one thing. But I think that to your point about um, kind of moving, um, moving the ball so incrementally, as opposed to saying, no, if we know that the best thing is, a pot is available, let's go there. Um, I think that you would get even more pushback from industry and from companies uh, who would shutter even more plants, who would lay off even more people, and uh, it would make EPA even that much more unpopular. Um, and again, I, I know that that's not the goal 
of EPA to be popular or to, um, you know, win friends is to, you know, protect the environment, but they still need to be able to operate. Um, and so I think that what they try to do um, from what they explained to me is that they try to say, let's, let's meet the best middle ground we can. Let's get the most protective standard that we think is possible and that we think is good and, and, and go there. And, and if we can get people to go there, then we can get them to move a little bit further because, and again, this is something we haven't talked about yet. The effluent limitation guidelines are supposed to be updated on a regular basis. So if I can get you to, you know, at least get up to point A in five years, I can maybe get you to point B and maybe I can get you to point C in another five years. And so it's a, it's a slow process, um, but it's very hard to go from zero to 60. And so the agency is doing um, what they think is, um, the most prudent and best way to actually get these um, these po- pollution controls in place in people in people's communities. Yeah, and as Talia said, this is really setting a floor. It's like with any codes and standards program; it takes years to develop. You have to bring all these stakeholders to the table. You have to do all the research and the science behind it. You have to make sure you bring everybody along. Meanwhile, industry is able to develop new technologies that can put them in a better position strategically and competitively so that when the rule comes out, it's a floor, but companies are ready to implement. So it's really important to keep these moving forward. Absolutely. And they can also go above the floor. I think that's the other thing. Like this is literally the base of what you can do. You can always go go above and beyond that. And a lot of companies are. Like, I think at this point in the conversation, it's really helpful to step back even further and just ask the, the question to Leah, why, first of all, what is environmental justice as it's defined today? And why does it matter so much in the context of these pollution regulations? And why is it, um, you know, a subject of, of such importance for you in your reporting? Sure. Um, so environmental justice is basically um, the fair and equitable treatment um, for all people, regardless of, you know, their race, um, their income, their zip code, whatever. It basically means that no matter where you live um, or the wherever you live should not dictate how much pollution you're, um, you're exposed to. And um, it also kind of mandates and, and necessitates a um, participation in the process. It means that if you are putting a coal plant in my community, I should have a say in that. I should be able to talk to you and tell you why this is a thing that I agree with or I don't agree with, and that that should be taken into account. Um, I think that um, this is important. Um, well, it wasn't, well I'll, I'll speak from a personal level. So for me, it was important to cover this because I think that um, having covered the environment and covered, covered energy for um, the last several years, um, I saw a lot of focus on um, you know, the technology, on resources, on um, you know, polar bears and animals. And, and I said, well, what about the people? who are around here? What about the people who are living next to these facilities and not just, you know, um, the, the token farmer that you kind of, you know, trot out for some story about fracking, but about the people who are living with a lot of these, um, the implications from some of these policy choices that we're making that we're not thinking about in terms of the environment or not thinking about in terms of environmental justice. Um, and I think that especially as, um, the as the country as the the world i guess has um kind of had this renewed focus on um civil rights um just kind of you know whether it be black lives matter or you know unrest in 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 other countries um we're we're 
I think they were a lot more attuned to kind of just the the idea of of, of human rights and that our our choices um, actually do impact people and um, and I think that it's important to look at all things from these different aspects and especially for me um, when looking at the environment it's like well hey let's let's look at this from a people aspect and let's look at this from a people aspect um, in terms of the folks who don't really have a lot of political power um, and so that's why it's been important for me to cover these sorts of things. Uh, and you have even more personal connection because you are a native of Flint, Michigan, which underwent is still undergoing a very severe water crisis that caused uh, widespread lead pollution. And, um, you know, the, 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 the city itself is still um, undergoing <laughs> a cleanup effort. Can you just talk about where things stand in Flint and your connection to the community? So I am born and raised uh, in Flint, Michigan. My mom still lives in the house that I grew up in. Um, I went and visited her over um, the uh, holiday break. And um, it's been interesting going back um, because I only go back to visit. And um, when I first went back, uh, maybe last year, like around the time that, you know, things were just going crazy there, um, I was astounded by um, how much mental mental capacity it took just to do very basic things. Like I had to remind myself that I couldn't wash my hands or I couldn't brush my teeth with um, faucet water. I had to use bottled water. We, My mom <laughs> was cooking um, for the holiday and she was making collard greens. And um, she told me she had to use like, I think two cases of water, like, you know, 20 ounce bottles of water to wash them because she didn't want to wash her food in the water from the faucet. And um, I, I remember my first time going back um, after everything kind of blew up, and I was I was astounded by how how much of a burden it was for me. And I was there for like five days, and I realized that my mom and other people in my community had been obviously experiencing this for you know months and months and months and months. And so when I go when I went back um, most recently, um, there is. It's, it was also really interesting. I watched a ton of TV, as one does on holiday break at your parents' house. And um, a lot of the, – there were so many commercials from the, the city, I believe, and, and they were just saying, like, hey, the water is clean. Um, they had bar graphs showing, you know, the, the level of lead that was in Flint water versus the EPA action standard. And I, I looked at it. And then I, you know, I look at the bottles of water that are still, you know, in my basement and I'm just like, there's a disconnect here. I went to, um, they still have open, um, a few, um, water distribution points. I think one in each, um, in each um, side of the city. And so I went there and, you know, I, the, the, the guys filled up my trunk with, you know, like eight cases of water. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I if I was in Flint, if I still lived in Flint, and um, I knew that the state was still giving me water, I definitely wouldn't trust the fact that uh, they tell me that the water is clean um, in, in out of the faucet. Because to me, it's like, well, if the water is clean, then why would you be paying, spending money to give me bottles of water? This isn't cheap. And Michigan is not a, a rich state. So why would you do this if you didn't have to? Um, and I think that that sort of, um, I guess, skepticism 
is, is probably something that is going to be very hard for um, the city and the state to shake um, in terms of um, rebuilding that trust for the people of Flint um, to actually use the water and to trust it. I'm very, very positive that my mom will never use, you know, um, faucet water to cook or drink or brush our teeth with ever again. I'm very positive of that. She already didn't really drink um, faucet water anyway. So I'm quite, quite, um, quite sure that she will definitely not do it now. And wouldn't it have been like $200 million up front to line the pipes correctly for the Flint River? I mean, I mean, the, the cost of this to try to correct on the back end is so much more than it would have been to do it right in the first place. Sure, definitely. And I, and I think that what we're seeing now is is probably what we're going to see in a lot of other communities and we're um and which is again a reason why you need to kind of keep that environmental disparities lens um on things um so yeah it's only you know um a couple you know million thousand however many dollars to um to fix certain certain things whether it be you know the pollution controls um to to keep the the pipes from corroding in flint or um something else um but especially if EPA is pushing a lot of uh, their responsibility onto states who are already cash strapped. And especially if you have a state like Michigan, where you have a community like Flint that has seen its tax base, you know, dwindle um, in the, the pollution, I mean, not pollution, but the um, population has has diminished um, um, exponentially um, over the last several years. Um, and it, so you, you, you don't have the money coming from the city. You maybe don't necessarily have um, some of the wealthier cities in Michigan willing to subsidize a place like Flint. And then you also don't have the EPA kind of coming in as, you know, big brother or dad or whomever and saying, hey, we're going to make sure that you're okay. Um, it, 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 it definitely can create a cycle. Um, and that's not to say that EPA hasn't done anything since the, the water crisis. I think that has been one of the great things about um about having a um, a catastrophe of this magnitude, um, it forces uh, the the federal government to kind of step in um, and to and to really hold people accountable. And and if nothing else, we know that at least in theory that um, that the water in Flint will be clean because everyone is watching. I think that what where the danger comes in is where are the other places that are not Flint that are not on the news, um, and how are they going to be faring? One last question for you. What is it like right now as a reporter digging into an agency like the EPA where Pruitt himself has been um, shown to be a bit paranoid about reporters? The EPA has hired a PR firm to investigate journalists um, to uncover dirt on journalists. He's got this private phone booth that people have have talked about. Um, you know, a lot of people are fearful within agencies of talking to reporters as well. Just w describe what it's like being a reporter covering EPA and other agencies. Sure. Um, I think that um, generally journalism has uh, had to adjust to the Trump administration. And um, in some ways, it's not a bad thing. It's It hasn't necessarily made my job easier. <laughs> but um, I think a lot of the work that we did previously was, was access journalism. And when that access went away with um, this administration, uh, journalists had to double down on the fundamentals of our craft. Like I do now a lot of cold calling and emailing. I look at a lot of documents and for names and websites for folks who might be knowledgeable 
knowledgeable about something, LinkedIn and social media, they're like my best friends. <laughs> I do lots of FOIAs. Um, and, and then there are also, you know, all the employees that you, you kind of tap into who um, have either left the agency at the end of the Obama administration or in other administrations or who have been a part of this exodus during the Trump presidency who can kind of try to give you some sort of in and say, okay, here's another person you can maybe try. Here's a phone number. You know, here's just kind of really knocking on those doors and trying to help you um, uh, cut through some of the clutter. Um, I think what's also been interesting to watch is um, it's kind of leveled the playing field for journalists. I mean, there are obviously, um, you know, the the big guys, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, all these folks. Um, but there were periods in Washington where I worked for some lesser, um, lesser known outlets and it would be crazy trying to get a response from federal agencies that just wouldn't call you back <laughs> or anything. And and I think that um, what you're seeing now is that everybody's in the same boat. Like, you know, the New York Times is getting snarky responses back from the press office and, you know, everyone is not having their questions answered. And I think that that just makes us all dig deeper to find the stories that um, the EPA, the Trump administration, whomever can't ignore. And I think that that's great for journalism and it's great for democracy. It makes my job a lot harder, but you know, that's what we got into this for. Talia Buford is a reporter with ProPublica. She covers environmental disparities. She is a former a reporter from Politico and the Center for Public Integrity. She joined us from New York. Talia, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for having me. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about our sponsor, and that sponsor is Power Energy Management. Power provides custom demand-side energy management solutions that uh, help keep you green and earn revenue in the process. Power is a leading national provider of demand response curtailment programs. The greenest energy is probably the energy you don't use, and Power helps you with that. It offers integrated solutions like storage plus demand response and other tools to help you achieve your green energy goals and monetize your energy assets. Power is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue through energy curtailment, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. Find out more about Power's demand-side energy management solutions at cpowerenergymanagement.com. On January 30th, Donald Trump will give his State of the Union address. And if the last year is any indication, during the energy portion, he'll likely celebrate his love of coal and his disdain for the global climate deal. Contrast that with New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo delivered his State of the State address this week. Cuomo touched on a clean energy innovation plan that includes 800 megawatts of offshore wind, a 1,500 megawatt energy storage target, a massive expansion of low-income solar, and a renewed focus on cleaning up the state's dirtiest power plants. The governor talked in broad brushstrokes during the address, but the supplemental plan includes a lot of detail. The most striking for me is this embrace of a 1,500 megawatt capacity goal for energy storage by 2030, which will be crucial as the state tries to ramp up to 50% renewables, loses vital nuclear capacity, and retires a slew of aging gas peaker plants. So Catherine, the legislature passed this mandate for storage last year, but it took months for the governor to back it. How significant is this push in the state? Yeah, this is great. This will open up business. I think it'll do what the California mandate did, which is to bring companies in to develop. And companies have been waiting to do this. Storage companies have been 
chomping at the bit um, in the New York Rev, it just wasn't happening. And so you now have a pretty durable solution in legislation, but then this as the administration target is great because it has funding to back it up. So there's a $200 million fund for the Green Bank to deploy funding for storage. And there's also NYSERDA will have $60 million in storage pilots that will look at reducing barriers and costs for, you know, smarter permitting, customer acquisition, interconnection, some of those gnarly issues that the solar industry had a while ago, the soft costs and that storage is facing now. So $260 million to kick it off is pretty good. I think that will bring industry to the table. I think Rev just wasn't doing it, and this will will really kickstart it. Jigger, you've um, been a little skeptical. You, you co-wrote an op-ed for GTM about why there will be political pressure to keep the target low, to sort of limit um, applications for projects. But this 1,500 megawatts number is a big initial number. How does that square with your expectations? I think our op-ed worked. But this had been in the works for a long time. I mean, the op-ed was published just before Christmas. No, not at all. I mean, this is this is the point that I keep trying to tell our listeners, which is that, like, the reason Governor Cuomo has been slow to implement REV or some of these other things is because he's not a like an energy guy, right? Like, so you have to pummel him to get him to do the right thing. Like, it's not, it's not something where he's like, oh, I'm sort of inclined to be a leader in all these other areas. He's more inclined to be a leader on housing and other areas that he cares about, right? So you have to hold his feet to the fire. Like the community solar program in, in, um, in New York with Vider has been a disaster, but it's getting fixed because we've held his feet to the fire, right? It's important not to be, you know, sort of like, oh, we're going to do this in a back room and we're going to basically like work it out in secret. You have to actually like say what you want and you have to hold these elected officials accountable. Otherwise, your issue drops off their radar screen and then, you know, they don't, you know, show leadership. Yeah, but remember, so Richard Kaufman is the one who had the, he with Audrey Zibelman had this vision of the Rev becoming this great platform for all these technologies to come to the table. So I think part of it was, let's see how far we can get Rev to move forward. And, you know, this is kind of the backstop. And, and I think what it's done is it shows an internalization by the governor of jobs and economic growth that really will follow through on his clean energy and climate agenda. So he's kind of stitching it all together now. And I think it shows a move forward and it shows that he's really having to push it where the rev just hasn't been able to go as far as they thought it would. Yeah, I completely agree. Right. But I just, I just want people to understand that this stuff doesn't happen because people are Democrats or Republicans. They don't happen because, you know, our technology is really low cost and, um, and it'll sell itself. It happens because people make a fuss about it. And then state legislators say, wow, we should actually pass a law on energy storage. And then the governor sits on it and we provide a ton of pressure on the governor. He was not going to sign this bill. And then we forced him to sign this bill. And now he's saying, well, if I'm going to be forced to sign this bill, I might as well take full credit for it, which is why he announced in the state of the state, which is awesome. This is exactly how the process has always worked in every state that we've been successful in. Well, there, there, you know, there has been an energy storage roadmap in place, and New York has been starting to get more serious about storage, but certainly a lot of concerns about the delays at the governor 
at the governor's desk. He didn't sign this bill for many months. And um, I think there, there, was, there was concerns about not wanting a mandate at all costs, you know, wanting to be uh, clear about how to implement a plan for pilots and commercial scale projects that get you to that get you to solving U- New York's unique grid challenges and fit within the rev goals. So one thing that people who have been doing storage in California tell me is this, look, the mandate just jumpstarted the industry. It created the ability to have a market. So you can still have a market now that they have this mandate. That's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily a subsidy. It's just saying, okay, here's a marker. We're open for business for storage. And everybody's been waiting for this. Now it, now you will be able to have a market and you will be able to have you know, competition and more of a platform. And I think it will actually make Rev work better. Yeah, and I do think we have to keep, you know, the his feet to the fire continuously. I mean, I think that, I mean, just to put this in perspective for you, Stephen, like the vast majority of community solar developers have written off New York, right? The vast majority of energy storage developers have written off New York, right? As of six months ago, Tesla and like Demand Energy and all these big companies They've stopped showing up because they never thought that they'd actually get any contracts. The total amount of storage that's actually been done in New York is less than 20 megawatts. It's been horrible, right? And people have spent millions of dollars in people's salaries and sponsorships of conferences and all this other stuff in New York. We are all hopeful that this mandate will now get people contracts such that they will continue to send their best and brightest people to New York. But I would say as of six months ago, we thought that the that everyone was sending their B team to New York. Well, and everybody thought Massachusetts would be the place to go. Um, and then Massachusetts came out with the 200 megawatt goal, which was not super aspirational. And then, you know, I think New York said, well, I think we can top this and bring the industry up here. And I also want to highlight the fact that, you know, the, this New York is actually doing a ton here through on energy efficiency, offshore wind. I mean, I, I really like the speech that the governor has laid out. And I really do think that New York is now going to, you know, sort of rival some of the other states in, you know, leadership on clean energy. Yeah, absolutely. Any any thoughts on the 800 megawatts of solicitations that are coming up in 2018, 2019? There will be a, the, the solicitations could come by fall, and there's an offshore wind master plan coming this year in New York as well. So the building blocks are being put in place for sure. Yeah, I will say about the wind, I've talked to some developers, and they still don't really have an offtake structure yet um, to, to give them some sta- stable pricing. So I think what they're going to need to do is NYSERDA is going to probably put together an offtake paper for the Public Service Commission. They'll have a comment period. NYSERDA will maybe come back with additional recommendations and another set of comments. So there's a there's kind of a long process. And remember, 800 megawatts these days, that's like two two projects. That's like two 400 megawatt projects. So hopefully they'll get this offtake structure in place. They'll bring, you know, they'll, they will attract businesses like Orsted, you know, former Dong and Statoil that now has the empire wind development business and get some of these big guys who know how to do this and really start developing. I think there is a lot more than eight, 800 megawatts that could be developed offshore in New York. Well, and the, and the success story really here comes from the fact that they did a um, solar and wind um, RFP uh, with NIPA as the credit offtake. And the the kilowatt hour prices in that auction came in way cheaper than they expected. 
And that's probably the mechanism they're going to use to support the offshore wind. Let's cap the show by talking about two once mighty forces in solar that are reemerging after some tough times, BP Solar and Sun Edison. Jigger was, of course, a founder and former CEO of Sun Edison, and he launched the M&A group at BP Solar in the early 2000s. He left Sun Edison in 2008, well before the company imploded, and he left BP Solar in 2003. So let's address these companies because they're both back after facing unique sets of troubles. First to BP, the oil and gas giant, which after 40 years in solar, shed its manufacturing business in 2011 during a viciously competitive time. That was when dozens of solar producers were closing their doors, um, mainly due to a surge in cheap Chinese panels. So just before Christmas, the company declared its re-entrance into solar with a $200 million four-year investment in LightSource, which is Europe's biggest solar developer. Just a few years ago, they had a handful of employees, and now they have hundreds of employees. And that gives BP this massive 6-gigawatt pipeline around the world. Jigger, is this the right move for BP? What do you think? It's a move for BP. Um <laughs> I mean, you know, LightSource is an extraordinary company, so I certainly am not going to take anything away from them, and I think it's a good company to invest in. I think the problem that I see with BP or Shell or whatever is that at the end of the day, what we want these oil companies to do is to shift 50% of their capital budget every year, which for BP, it's like $20 billion a year of CapEx, so it's like $10 billion of dollars that need to be shifted into things that are good for the planet instead of what they've been doing, which is bad for the planet. And um, and this doesn't feel like an investment that is core to their mission. I can't imagine as a, a shareholder of BP that someone's going to be jumping up and down going, oh my God, this is perfect. This is exactly what BP should do. They should shift $10 billion a year into you know utility scale solar plants. Um, and so like what I'd rather- Wait, So you're, what you're saying is that you don't think they're being aggressive enough? No, no, I don't think they're being strategic enough, right? I mean, if you're going to be a shareholder of BP, you expect 20% returns on their stock, right? And to get 20% returns on their stock, it has to be something that can utilize the 10,000 engineers that work at BP. So technologies like geothermal are a basket case. BP could save the entire geothermal industry by itself. And they've got experts in subsurface drilling. They've got all sorts of expertise there that they can, you can, you, they can uniquely bring to the table. The same thing is true for things like the RNG market, right? Renewable natural gas is a shit show in the United States. And, you know, they're really good at, at power trading and gas trading and all of that stuff. So they could single handedly build the RNG business in the United States. Like there's lots of areas where they bring unique expertise. That is not wind and solar. What's the bullish case then? I mean, the bullish case is that this is the fastest growing resource in the world and that the risk profile is pretty low and it's e an easy way to tell shareholders that they're doing something and they're investing in one of the you know fastest growing renewable energy companies on the planet. Yeah, $200 million is not going to break their bank. And Tim Derrick, who came out of Sun Edison, ironically, is running LightSource. And so they'll be successful with that venture. Running LightSource, the American division, just want to be clear. Yeah, no, look, um, I, I, I think the bullish case is that, this, that they're dipping their toe back in the water and that they will take it seriously this time. And this, was, this won't be a sideshow, you know, like it has been in cycles in the past. They will understand that they actually are an energy company and not an oil company. And they will understand that their 
fundamental business is at risk, right? When you look at Carbon Tracker and all the work that's been done in the UK and by the Bank of England, it is very clear that very smart people believe that all of these oil companies are going bankrupt within the next 20 years because they have to leave their oil in the ground to be able to save the planet. And they've got to figure out how to shift their capital investment away from additional oil and gas and towards more profitable ventures. You know, Shell oil company right now has a negative 1% return on equity, right? That's horrible. BP is not much better. It's like a two and a half percent return equity, right? And so their shareholders did not invest in their stock for a two and a half percent return equity, right? And, and so I just think solar can get them to maybe a six or seven or eight percent return equity. But to get to double digits, they have to do riskier uh, stuff that they are uniquely positioned to be able to de-risk. Let's go to Sun Edison now, which uh, got into some risky business itself. It was once a top renewable energy developer, filed for bankruptcy in 2016 after growing far too big and complicated for investor tastes. If you want a full, raw account of that uh, collapse, listen to our episode from October of 2015. Jigger has a lot of thoughts on what was going on at the company at the time. Uh, yeah, a long time ago, but if you're in need of more background on what happened, I think that's a good episode to listen to. So the company has reemerged from bankruptcy proceedings as a much, much smaller private developer. Jigger, can you just remind people of the state of Sun Edison when it entered bankruptcy proceedings and started shedding its assets? So Sun Edison, um, around that time, had basically made some really risky decisions. They Ahmad had decided he did not want to raise more equity, even though people were throwing money at him, and instead wanted to raise debt. Goldman Sachs and others had said, well, if you're going to raise debt, then we need this ability to issue shares in Sun Edison or Terraform to basically be able to um, get our money back, you know, issue shares, and then you know, get paid back through selling those shares. That created a death spiral for Sun Edison as their stock price went down. Goldman Sachs had to issue more shares to be able to like actually get paid back. And it just, they basically took so much risk um, that the company became unsustainable. And the money they did get, they didn't spend wisely. And so they ended up squandering, overpaying for assets and all sorts of other things that they did. And so what they've been doing in bankruptcy is spinning off all of the pieces that people are willing to pay for. So most recently, Brookfield just closed on the Terraform Global assets. They had closed a month earlier on the Terraform assets, um, which will remain publicly traded. Terraform Global will go private. And, um, you know, I think that they are starting to find their legs. I actually don't know what the new Sun Edison will do. I tried to look up who was left there. I couldn't even figure that out. I mean, there's a name of a person who's the CEO, but I can't even find out what that person does. And so I don't know what the new Sun Edison is left doing, but all of the parts that were worth keeping are now owned by Mitsui or Brookfield or other people who bought the pieces. Right. Uh, the Brookfield ownership includes a lot of the utility-scale wind and solar plants. Mitsui bought the commercial industrial business and uh, NRG bought up a bunch of uh, assets as well. So they really have nothing nothing left on their books. And I don't think many employees either. Well, and NRG is now selling all those assets. Exactly. 
And one thing, you know, I worked with them for a while um, and they had some great talent. And a lot of those folks have gone on and done really interesting things. We mentioned Tim Derrick that's running Light Source in America. Paul Gaynor, who had run First Wind, is now uh, running another development company called Long Road. And he has a bunch of the talent that was at Sun Edison with him. And a lot of others have spun off too. And it's it's been really fun to watch them because they were all really good people. Well, this kind of ties in the two stories that I'm asking about. And the final question I have is, will one of these up-and-coming solar developers, they're more than up-and-coming now, they're very large global players, but, um, you know, let's say a light source that is now, you know, will be 43% owned by BP over the coming years. Is that the next global renewable energy super major that you know, Ahmad Chatilla was talking about in 2014, 2015. My sense is that the global super majors are going to be the existing companies that are here now. So folks like NG or EDF or some of those Anel. folks. And now it doesn't feel like these new companies, um, newish companies, um, really have the capability of making that breakthrough. I certainly think that Sun Edison had that capability, but their management team was just so awful that they really couldn't execute it. Um, and I don't know that any of the new players have those ambitions. I think most of these companies are far more targeted. Um, AES, for instance, probably has that capacity with um, with their acquisition of S-Power. So um, we'll see. Let's tell our listeners something they may not know now. Catherine, what story did you dig up this week? Yeah, so I just wanted to kind of start the year with people thinking about policy per usual. And, you know, the end of last year, we were all kind of left in a heap after the tax bill ran us all over and we all had to work so hard to make sure that renewables were not adversely impacted in a significant way. But looking at 2018, and you all know I'm an optimist, uh, there are a lot of great opportunities. The president's been talking again about an infrastructure bill. And while formerly Congress didn't seem to didn't seem to want to do that because of the price tag. Thanks to the tax bill, they don't seem to care about price tags anymore. So we're even hearing from some of these real fiscal conservatives, the Tea Party guys that, you know, money is, money may not be an object anymore. So I think infrastructure, um, I think they're, they're still going to try to move on energy bills. There are appropriations and defense authorization that are great places for technology programs. The farm bill has to be done this year. So all those innovations in agriculture and water resources, I think, are going to have a lot of opportunities. And then again, with EPA and FERC, and I would just say, you know, as as Jigger likes to say, also, you got to show up, you got to, you got to make sure that you build the record and you submit comments and you really make your opinion known and then let people know that you made your opinion known. Because if they don't have, if you don't speak out, if you give up and say, I, I can't have an impact, then you definitely won't have an impact. So I just wanted to put a pitch out there for people to stay engaged and stay mindful and know that you you do make a difference. Jigger, what is engaging you right now? So there's two books I wanted to highlight. One is um, by Varun Sivaram, who I don't agree with most of the time, and I certainly don't agree with him in this book, but it's called Taming the Sun, Innovations to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet, where he really lays down a case, which I thought was interesting, that the finance industry has largely been solved in his mind, but there still needs to be a lot of technology development and regulatory changes to be able to accommodate larger penetrations of solar. Um, I don't love the thesis, but I think it's an important book that's going to um, 
uh, sway the conversation. And so, um, so I think it's important to, to highlight. The other book was, um, I don't know if folks know Nate Adams, but Nate is just this extraordinary guy who's been <laughs> converting, you know, 1600 square foot houses in Ohio into net zero energy homes. And he's taken all of his learnings and created a textbook, I would say, called the Home Comfort Book, which is really a great read and really, you know, it's a tough read, but it's a great read and it really helps you understand how to really more comprehensively uh, convert homes into zero energy homes. Love both those guys. Huge shout out to Nate Adams, who is a fan of the Energy Gang and who really turned me on to the idea of this whole home deep energy efficiency and how much more cost effective it was than these incremental efficiency efforts. And he also really turned me on to the lack of accountability in energy efficiency programs around the country as well. So kudos to him for that resource. And then Varun, um, really smart guy. I cannot wait to read the book. He actually sent me a copy of it yesterday and shale khan i believe is going to sit down with him and do an interview sometime in the next few weeks so we'll probably publish that if i get a chance to read the full book then i'll probably sit in for that interview but it may end up being shale and varun because shale's already read the book so uh, those are good recommendations my i was just reading a story right before we got on the uh, podcast here and it it's directly related to the conversation that we've been having about EPA and its move away from science-based policy. And I was reading a story from Grist, which actually originally came from Mother Jones, part of the uh, Climate Desk uh, network. They, they showed the number of instances of climate change disappearing from government websites. And the Environmental and Data Governance Initiative has been tracking the number and they went through and showed all the times when climate change had been stripped from, and, and clean energy for that matter, had been stripped from the EPA website, the Department of Interior, the Department of Energy, the, the Department of Transportation, the Government Accountability Office, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, the Department of State, FEMA, and the National Park Service. We saw this coming, but the 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 accounting of just how often the uh, phrase climate change had been scrubbed is pretty alarming. Hey, great news to start the year with, huh? <laughs> okay, well, we're going to bring you the alarming and the exciting throughout 2018. We're so thrilled to have you with us. We're relaxed after our break here for more good conversations. We're going to debate. We're going to discuss. We're going to bring on lots more experts and reporters and we're going to talk amongst ourselves and try to help you understand the trends that are coming down the pike in this crazy energy transition. My two co-hosts, love these, love these two. So glad that you're going to be with me in 2018. Catherine Hamilton, enjoy the rest of the snowstorm with your family, and they can all start talking now behind you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Even the dog can start barking. <laughs> Jigger, hopefully your power doesn't go out. Give Pepco a call. See what they're up to. I uh, can't wait to uh, embark on 2018 with you. Happy bomb cyclone. Happy bombogenesis, cyclogenesis, whatever you want to call it. Thanks for being here, folks. I'm Stephen Lacey with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week. <laughs> <laughs>